too often when a problem in our life comes our way, we, 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 we think like this, like especially as Americans, Americans are problem solvers and we all tend to be problem solvers. When there's a problem, we want a solution and we want a solution right now. We want things to be resolved. We want to know what to do. We, we want to know how to get out of our mess. But our messes may be like David's mess of no real solution. But the solution really is to follow David's path, to trust and wait patiently for the Lord to resolve problems of our lives in God's time and in God's way. And I just know for me pastorally, that's that's helpful because time to time people come to me with problems in life and they're looking for counsel. And there are times I can give real good counsel and real helpful counsel. Other times I can just say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to your problem. All I can say is just seek the Lord. And I need to be content with that. And I think you all need to be content with that. And it may be that that that's the solution to your problem. There's no solution. You just got to wait and trust in the Lord. Now, that's not to say there's no solution. Oftentimes people come with problems and their problems because of the result of their sin. And of course, the message is turn from your sin and. And seek the Lord, seek the cleansing and forgiveness that's in Christ. And and other times people have dug a deep hole because of uh, foolish choices they've made in their lives, bad habits. And the solution is just to start working to get out of those, trusting the Lord for patience and strength. Sometimes hard times have fallen upon people through no fault of their own. And and again, it's, it's amazing to me how the counsel is just the same, right? Trust in the Lord. God who brought the circumstances can easily remove them. So trust in his sovereign plan. So this morning we come to Psalm 5. We see David is distressed. He's crying out to the Lord. Let's begin by reading. The superscription says, For the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. David wrote the psalm. It's meant for public worship, either by a choir or the entire congregation. It's, it's meant for flutes, those wind instruments we have. It sets the tone. And then David writes this, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, heed the sound of my cry for help, my king and my God, for to you I pray in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice in the morning. I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow down in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable what they say. Their inward parts is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out. For they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them. That those who love your name may exult in you, for it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Well, Psalm 5 is broken down to five sections. And uh, each of these, like, like, go back and forth. David starts talking about himself, and then he talks about the enemies. 
He, he, he talks about the righteous man and he talks about the wicked one. He, he talks about the one upon whom God's favor rests. And then he talks about the one upon whom God's wrath rests. So it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Verses one through three is the first section. It's focused on David. We see him just crying to the Lord, pleading that God would answer his prayer. And then four through six, he focuses upon his enemies and particularly he focuses upon how God hates them. And then in seven, and eight, the focus is back again on David and he puts forth his commitment to follow the Lord. And the fourth section focuses again upon his enemies and particularly why God should punish them. In the last section, verse 11 and 12, is a call for the righteous to seek the Lord because God's favor rests upon the righteous. The title of my message this morning is help me and harm them. Now, I, I got the title from one of my seminary professors, um, but it really captures the, the pathos of, of this psalm. David's in trouble seeking help from the Lord. That's that's nothing new. But as he seeks his rescue, he's not just content at that. He's going a step further and he prays that the Lord would deal harshly with his enemies, destroying them in his sin, in their sin. And much of the Psalms deals with with their sin and how they should be punished by the Lord. It's only a righteous man who can speak this way, like four through six and nine and ten. Well, let's just start working through the psalm. This is our habit. Verses one through three. Here's my first point. David says, hear me. Listen to me. I trust you can see it right there. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. And then verse 3 comes the assurance that God will hear. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now, what's interesting about these prayers, we've seen this before in Psalm 3 and 4, is that they don't say anything about David's actual prayer. All he's talking about is saying, God, hear me, listen to me as he cries, just pleading that God would would answer him and that just God would would hear his cry like Psalm 4, 1. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You've relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Or, or chapter three, verse four, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. But we don't know exactly what he was crying. He's just pleading that God would listen. Pretty instructive for us. We think about praying. Right? We, we can pray our prayers and then we can pray that God would hear our prayers. David says that often. But notice the passion in this verse. He's groaning, as it says there in verse one. He's crying in verse two. He's pleading that his prayer would enter the ear of God. Give ear to my words. I'm reminded of um, when my son David was, you know, you, David, you were probably about three or four. And uh, as is the habit of sometimes kids, they, they can just kind of chatter and, and go along. And and as David would be chattering and talking, we we wouldn't be looking at him. We'd be out there. We'd feel a hand come onto our chin and like pull us over and he would pull us over. And so we were like looking at him and then he would talk to us and then he would say to us, that to us. Remember that, David? Do you guys remember that? S.R. Hannah. Yes. It was a habit. He just pull your face. And so you look at him and that's what David is doing. He's taking the face of God and he's saying, God, listen to me. Give ear to my words. May my words sink into your ear. So he's saying, hear me. And this is a cry of a desperate man. He's desperate in the fact that he's just groaning. He's in pain. He's in sorrow. He's in difficulty. Some some translate this. Consider my lament. 
Or, or consider my meditation. The idea is that David's requests were even inaudible because the pain was so great. Just sighs and grunts and groans. But realize this, God can even answer those prayers. Remember in Romans chapter 8, where Paul speaks of the struggle and prayer that we all face from one time to another. The Spirit helps our weaknesses, Paul writes, Romans 8:26. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Just, we know something's wrong. And we need help. And we literally cry to the Lord. Perhaps that's tears. Perhaps it's, it's grunts. Maybe it's groans in our pain. And, and the Holy Spirit speaks groan. Takes our groans. Takes them. Interprets them. And intercedes to the Father on our behalf. And that's what David is saying. He's saying, oh God, even in my groans, listen to my, my struggles. And David, in the end of verse 2, is, is, is postured perfectly for prayer. He says, heed the sound of my cry for help, my king and my God. David who sits on the throne is under one who sits on the throne. Though he himself is king, he has a king. David called him my God, just a personal, yes, God, you are my king, but you also are, are my God. And he knows that he will hear his prayer and he says to you is the one I pray. What a, what a great posture of prayer to, to, to pray to the, your God who is your king as well. And then we see in verse 3 a great model for prayer. We could surely preach a message on just verse 3 alone. In the morning, O Lord, I... You will hear my voice in the morning. I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. I'm just going to preach a four point sermon, mini sermon here on on verse three. He prays early twice. Does he mention in the morning? I think that is his top priority in life. Once he gets out of bed, he's on his knees praying to the Lord in the morning, in the morning. It's a, it's a regular thing. I just say that would be a good practice for all of us to follow. Praying early. Second, he prays orderly. I will order my prayer to you. That is, I'll arrange my prayers much like a priest takes the time to arrange the sacrifice on the altar. So likewise, David thinks through his prayer requests, doesn't waste time with God, but is strategic about that. He's orderly. He prays expectantly. He says, I will eagerly watch like a watchman. On the wall of a city watching for the attack of an enemy. So likewise, he, he prays to God and, and, and expects the answer to come somehow, some way. He's praying early and orderly and expectantly and confidently. He says, you will hear my voice. Beginning of verse 3. He has so walked with God through the years. He has found that when he prays, God answers him. He knew that God had helped him in the past and... He knew that God would help him in the future. So I just say this. Is, is your prayer life like this? Is it, is it early? Is it orderly? Expectantly? Is it confident? That could easily take an hour. I just say this. May the Lord convict us where we lack and give us grace to pray as David prayed. Well, let's go on to the second point. That one, Verses 1 through 3. Just hear me. And then we hear in verses 4 through 6. Why? God should hear his prayer. They begin with this for because this is why you should hear me. My second point is this because you hate wickedness. Hear me 
because you hate wickedness. Four, verse four, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. These are some challenging words. Because, quite frankly, there are many in the evangelical world today who don't believe these words. You may maybe heard this, this phrase that God loves to sin but hates the sinner. You've heard that, I trust. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And, and there's truth in that statement. Okay? It doesn't come out of left field. There's very much truth in that statement because even Jesus said God loved the world. He so loved it that He gave His Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The reason why Jesus came to earth is because He loves sinners. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, God has a love for sinners. When Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, He showed how much the father continued to love his wayward, sinful, rebellious son, watching and eagerly waiting for him to come back in the same way God our father loves wayward people and is eagerly longing and waiting for people to turn and repent of their sin. Yes, God loves sinners and absolutely God hates sin. Sin ruined the creation. Sin ruins lives. Sin ruins marriages. It ruins society. And throughout all the Bible, God is always calling people to turn from their sin and turn to trust in Christ because He hates sin and will punish sin. It's the best thing for us. In fact, Jesus came into the world that God might punish sin. He bore the wrath upon the cross. But that's just a picture of how much God hates sin. How much sin needs and deserves to be punished. And Jesus came to restore the creation to the sinless paradise it was meant to be until sin came into the world. So yes, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. There's truth. But here, here's, here's what I would say is that God is more complex than just having one attitude towards the sinner. Having one perspective towards the sin. Because we see what some might call a contradiction. I don't think it's a, a contradiction at all. I think it's tied up in the complexity of God. Look at verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Here it is. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate the doers of iniquity. It doesn't say you hate the iniquity of those who do sin. It says you hate the doers of iniquity. This verse clearly says that God hates the sinner. So when you say that God loves the sinner but hates the sin, that's a, that's a half-truth. Okay? But when that masquerades as the only truth, it becomes an untruth. Because there's another side to God as well, is that He hates the sinner. It's not the only place in Scripture where it's said over in chapter 11, verse 5. Just turn over there, just a couple, couple chapters. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. He, it's the one who loves violence that his soul hates. It's not the violence that his soul hates, though his soul hates the violence. He hates the one who has the violence as well. And, and even look back here in chapter 5, verse 6, the, the last phrase, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. That is, he hates the man who fills his life with bloodshed and deceit. God hates the sinner. So the question comes, are you going to believe that? I've had conversations over the years with people who who put out, oh, God, God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And I say, well, what about Psalm 5, 5? 
And they say, no, no, but God loves the sinner. I'm saying, but it says here he hates the sinner. And I'm just going to say this. Do you believe the Bible? Or are you going to hold to your, your pet little nice put in a box theology that God loves the sinner and hates the sin? By the, by the way, it's statements like this which make Bible study so interesting. Just when you think you got it all figured out. They're like, God throws a little wrench in there. Like, huh, how does that work out? So you've got to figure out how is it that God loves the sinner and how is it that he hates the sinner at the same time? And here's what I would say. There are two sorts of sinners. There are two types of sinners. There's a sinner that's repentant, that loves God, places faith in Christ. The Lord loves those. And then there's the other sinner who's unrepentant and continues in sin. And hates God or rebels against God. And we find that God hates those types of sinners. I mean, I just think about the illustration of the thieves on the cross. Jesus is in the middle. And there's a, a sinner whom God hates. And there's a sinner whom God loves. And what's the difference? Just the one is repentant. Jesus, remember me when I enter your kingdom. I, I'm guilty. I'm getting what I deserve. And the other one was just like everyone else walking by. He was hurling insults at Jesus as well, demonstrating his continual hostility to God, an unrepentant heart. And as verse 6 says, to those people, he will destroy those who speak falsehood. Those who continue in their sin, those who are continued rebellion against the Lord, God will punish. God hates those. That's what it means that he hates. He's not, not fickle like us, that he loves and then hates. and loves. What, what, it, what it's, love means is he's got favor on these people. And what his hatred means, he's got judgment coming upon these people. And that's the whole context of Psalm 5. Here are enemies of David who are seeking to take him down. And enemies of David are enemies of God. And God will take them down. He'll destroy them. And that's what it means that he hates them. That's what it means in parallelism of verse 6, right? You hate those who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And, uh, 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 deceit. and ultimately, he'll destroy them in hell. Because it's difficult to separate the sin and the sinner. Whenever God sends a soul to hell, He sends the soul to hell, not the sin. They go to hell because of their sin. It's not just their sin that spends eternity in hell. It's, it's they who spend eternity in hell. And you say, well, well why is this? Why does, why does God hate? Why does God destroy? Why does God send sinners to hell? It's because verse 4 says, you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. God takes no pleasure in our sin. In fact, any picture we have of heaven of God is picture of purity. Isaiah chapter 6. It's the seraphim that are around, flying about, covering their hands and their eyes and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah the prophet, the righteous of the land, fell undone at the feet of this pure God. When you, when you read of heaven and revelation, you hear about how nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination lying shall ever come into it. It's a pure place because God is there. No evil dwells with him, verse 4. And, and so the, the question easily comes up, well, how can anyone dwell with God? Especially David. Because <laughs> he was a man of bloodshed. He was a man of deceit. He was a man of falsehood. He sinned with Bathsheba, covered up for a year. He murdered Uriah, refused to acknowledge it. How can David be so pious, say, hear me, God, because you hate the wickedness. 
You hate wickedness, so hear me because I'm, ergo, I'm righteous. But see, they're wicked. And, and, and the implication Jesus is David's holding himself to be righteous. And he's saying, destroy the wicked, but hear me because I've got my in with you because I, I'm righteous. But, but he wasn't righteous. So how can you figure that out? I, I think the key is David's attitude in verses 7 through 8. I'm entitling this section, lead me, lead me. Or you might say, say guide me. But I'm getting that right there from verse eight. Lead me in your righteousness. Let, let, let's read these, these verses. We see a, a change, a, a ping pong back from David in one through three, talking about the enemies in four through six. And now about David in six, seven and eight. But as for me, he's saying my ways are different than the ways of these wicked people. He says this, but as for me. By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow down in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. And I think this whole attitude that just says, God, I'm submitting to you, lead me. Is that everything that makes a difference in David? He says, those people are wicked, the men of bloodshed, men of deceit, men of treachery. And they're pursuing their wickedness and they have no regard for you. But I, I have a regard for you, O Lord. It says, lead me in your righteousness. Verse 8, lead me in the way that I should go. And that's the cry of the believer. That's the cry of the one who has faith in God. It's a difference between David and his enemies. And the difference will come that David will experience God's favor while the enemies will experience God's wrath. I love how he talks here in verse 7 about how... David enters the presence of God. Look what it says. It says, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. How is it that David went into the temple? It wasn't because he was righteous. It was because of God's loving kindness. It's because of his steadfast love. But it's not just the steadfast love or the loving kindness of God or the mercy of God. It is the abundance of loving kindness that's there in God. Or as the New King James says, it's because of the multitude of God's mercy. The mercy that's over and over and over and lavished upon us. Or as the ESV says, it's because of the abundance of God's steadfast love. Listen, right? For any of us to come into God's presence only because God is abundant and abounding and overflowing in his steadfast love towards us. It's interesting here in a psalm that speaks so much about destroying the wicked is a psalm that, on the other hand, speaks so highly of the abundant grace of God that's there. I just say this, the abundant grace of God is a theme of our worship oftentimes. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that is so abundant that it exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of a lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. There's the abundance of loving kindness, steadfast love. The multitude of mercy. We call God's grace amazing, right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me. Or as David said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a boastful, wicked deceiver. 
once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And, and we're, we're blown away by this grace. It's the heart of a believer. Blown away like Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Like, how can it be that I gain a part in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. I'm the one that inflicted pain upon him because of my sin. He died. How can that be? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's abundant grace. John Bunyan, when he wrote his autobiography, he simply entitled it Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And when Paul wrote about grace, he said the law came in that transgressions would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All the sin that came to light because of the law made, made sin just increase. It says, well, grace was more than that. Right? Grace is the paint that will paint every room. Wherever there's a room to paint with sin that's confessed, paint will cover it. There's enough there. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Every confessed sin can be covered by that blood which is abounding. And that's David's assessment of his own life. As for me... I'm coming to you not on my righteousness. I'm coming by your abundant loving kindness. I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow down in reverence for you. We bow down because we know we're at his mercy. When you come into a king's presence who can destroy you in a moment, you come begging in fear for mercy and grace. I just say, do you, do you know this? Do you know that the only way you can come to God is through Jesus and the cross? And you embrace that. Is the grace of God your highest joy? You read the first half of Ephesians chapter 1, and, and it talks about how God's salvation of us is to the praise of His glorious grace. It's, it's to praise the grace of God and His kindness to us and His abundant loving kindness. So can you say with David, verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. See, David didn't want to walk the path of the wicked man. He wanted to walk the path of the, the righteous man. And he's commanding God to, to take David by his shoulders and, and lead him in the righteous way. Which, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is, is intermingled with trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and God will make your way straight. When you, when you trust in the Lord, when you don't lean on your own understanding, your own wisdom, God is going to be the one to make your path straight. That's exactly what He's talking about here. He says, I, I want to go on the straight path. I want to go on the righteous path. I don't want to be like Psalm 1. I mean, Psalm 1 talks about this dichotomy, about the wicked and the righteous. And the blessing comes upon the righteous man. Verse 1 of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He's not going to walk that way. But his delights in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like the tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and its seeds, and its leaves does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. Psalm 1-4, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked won't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's this dichotomy in Psalm 1 that it's coming up here as well. Is the, the wicked are walking this way. Verses 4 through 6, you hate them. You hate wickedness. But, oh Lord, lead me in the righteous way by your grace. Help me. Let me do that. And so we come to the, the fourth point. We've seen hear me, verses 1 through 3, because 
you hate wickedness and lead me, verses seven, eight, because they hate you. That's what I'm I'm calling this. They hate you. Verses nine and ten. Now, in the Hebrew text, verse nine begins with an explanatory word, a, a key. I mean, a key is the Hebrew word. It means thus or, or for or, or because or, or for. I don't know why the New American Standard left it out. The ESV and King James verse caught it. So it reads like this. For, verse 9, there is nothing reliable in what they say. And this, by the way, matches the four of verse 4. That's why it's so easily broken down into five sections. Because one through three are talking about David. And then four, because this is a reason, four through six. And he talks about David, seven and eight. Four, verse 9 again. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. They hate you. I'm, I'm pulling that from the last phrase of verse 10. They are rebellious against you. So, so lead me, God, because they're rebellious against you and they're going their own way, but I want to go the different way. Now, verse 9 has got these four rapid-fire statements speaking about hatred of David's enemies towards the Lord. There's nothing reliable in what they say. You can't trust their word. Their inward part is destruction itself, right? Right within their belly is a grave. Literally, it's what that's talking about. And, and um, it's the corrupt to the core the Bible speaks about. The throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. I just just the things that they say come from a, a wicked heart. These attributes are picked up by Paul in Romans chapter three, in which he describes how all of us are under sin. There's none who does good, not even one. He quotes from Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. And then he comes and he quotes this from Psalm chapter five. Their throat is an open grave. They, they flatter with their tongue and our, and our mouths. Basically, they speak an overflow from our hearts. And wicked, unregenerate hearts speak Wicked, unregenerate words. I mean, what, what else would you expect? In David's case, I think he's dealing with insurrectionists who would do anything to bring him down. They'd lie and deceit against him. They would talk smooth to get their way. And suppose that David the king, actually they're opposed to David's king, the, the true king, the Lord of hosts. They're rebellious against you at the end of verse 10. And so... David in verse 10 pleads that God would turn against them. And, and, and verse 10 is his hardest. Verse 5, we see here that it's a prayer of imprecation. It's a prayer that, that God would get them. That's where I get my title, right? Help me and hurt them. Hurt them comes here from verse 10. Hold them guilty, O God. In other words, don't forgive these folks. Hold them guilty. He says, by their own devices, let them fall. In the midst of their transgression, thrust them out because they're rebellious against you. David full well knew that God had said, vengeance is mine, Deuteronomy 32, 35. He knew full well that God was the one to dish out retributions against his enemies, right? When Saul was mighty against David, Saul spared his life on a couple of occasions. 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, one was in the cave. When Saul went to relieve himself, he could have killed him, but instead he just cut a lop off of his garment to prove that he was there and he could have killed him. Or for Samuel 26, when David's sleeping in the camp and by, by God's grace, David walked through the camp while they're all sleeping and he's got the spear right there. He could have speared him, but he didn't. 
He said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed because vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. And when Shimei was cursing him, David didn't seek the revenge. She was walking out of the city in Absalom's rebellion. So we looked at when we looked at Psalm 3. He knew there's a guilty man getting what he deserved. He didn't want to destroy Shimei right there. He'd let God deal with it. He knew vengeance is mine, I repay. But, but also, one of the things we need to understand about this prayer in verse 10 is that, that David is the king of Israel. He fought the wars against the enemies of God. But these enemies even here seem different. They're not military enemies. They seem to be from within, spreading deceit and lies, using whatever means necessary. I think this fits really well with, say, Absalom's rebellion. People who are rising up against the king. And David completes, puts them completely in God's hand. He says, hold them guilty, O God. God, pour out your wrath upon them. Now, God can do this in one of two ways. Either he can pour it out directly upon them. He can cast them out, as that third phrase says, and the multitude of the church to thrust them out. Or even the second phrase here, verse 10, he can do, by their own devices, let them fall. God can simply be hands off. It's okay, that's the way you want to run. <laughs> okay, have at it. Romans chapter 1 speaks this way. After describing the sinful ways of man and how God's wrath is against those who suppress God's truth and unrighteousness because he made himself known to everyone through the creation, it says three times, Romans 1, 24, Romans 1, 26, Romans 1, 28, that God gave them over to their sin. He just said, OK, if that's what you want, have at it. That's what David's talking about here. By their own devices, let them fall. <clears throat> and what goes around comes around. <clears throat> those who spread lies will be the victim of lies. And those who set the trap will in the end find themselves caught in the trap. That's what Solomon said. Proverbs 1. These sinful people are enticing others. Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Proverbs 1.11. Then he says, but they lie in wait for their own blood. And they ambush their own lives. Though they're trying to ambush others, they themselves will be ambushed. Or Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's what David is talking about here. By their own devices, let them fall. And the question really comes to us. The question for verse 5 was, do you believe it? Do you believe that God hates sinners? But there's grace coming in this chapter, obviously. But 10, the big question is this. Is should I pray verse 10 for my enemies? The question that really comes here, and in one in one regard, it's it's perfectly fine to play to pray. I think I don't think it's necessarily wrong, um, especially when you come to realize God's righteousness that that God wants His kingdom to be righteous, and, and anything not righteous, God will destroy. And when you pray, "Let Your kingdom come," you are saying, "God, come and crush the unrighteous." And that's a joyful time. You read Psalm 96 and Psalm 94. It's talking about great joy in the judgment that's coming. Uh, creation, let the whole earth rejoice in God that he is coming to destroy the earth. And when you see the righteousness not reigning on the earth and the, there's pain in your heart because you want God's rule, righteous rule to reign perfectly. Verse 10 is a good prayer to pray. 
But this also is a New Testament prayer. It's the heart of the, the martyred souls in Revelation 6. They cry out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood with those who dwell on the earth? In other words, they've been killed for the sake of Christ. And God has been silent. And they're, they're crying. Revelation 6.10, you can read about it. They're crying, God, how long until you avenge their blood? Get them! They killed us. And we were righteous. And they killed us, destroyed us. You and your righteousness... God, get after them. That's a New Testament prayer. Sounds just like Psalm 510. God's answer at that point. Revelation 6 says, wait. So there are going to be more martyrs. And when the number of martyrs is complete, I'll make everything right. In other words, there's going to be more injustice, but I'm waiting patiently. And every time when I get them, David's saying, get them now. The martyrs are saying, get them now. I think that's not such a wrong prayer to pray. However, let me just say you need to be careful because before you go out and pray such a prayer against any enemies you might have, first of all, consider David's unique position as a king. He was a king of Israel. To resist the king was to resist the Lord as one in authority. Secondly, he lived in the days when God's laws were the law of the land. To turn against the law of God was a punishable offense. See that in Leviticus when we study that in the fall. And so David's prayers against the enemies are coming from his context. Is that they're enemies against the state. That means they're enemies against you because God was ruling in the state in a way that's different than us. So you need to remember that none of us are kings or none of us are in a position to punish others in our society. We don't live in a theocracy today. God's law is not the law of the land. So things are a bit different for us. And second... Not only consider David and his role, but consider the message of the gospel, which is our message today. When Jesus gave his last commission to the disciples, he said this repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's a message of the disciples repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and your sins will be forgiven. That's our message today. <clears throat> and so when there are rebellious, deceitful wicked people, our message is repent, turn to Christ while there's time. And you read through the book of Acts, you see that clearly. As Peter said to those who nailed Jesus on the cross, repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. He wasn't vindictive against them. He was calling them to repent. Paul said on Mars Hill, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all everywhere should repent. And today, really, our heart should be for repentance and reconciliation. When Jesus died upon the cross, he still found the grace to pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34. When Stephen was being stoned to death, he followed the pattern of Jesus, saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when John and Paul were whipped and flogged by the religious leaders, they didn't pray for vengeance. They prayed for boldness to continue to spread the message of grace. And I say that needs to be our attitude as well as to spread the message of grace today. We should be longing for the prodigal to come home. We should be praying for their salvation. So I just say this. Be slow to pray. Verse 10. But when people are so far gone. And they're living entirely in the lust of their flesh and sinning against all knowledge. And have done such harm to God's people. And have made themselves such enemies of you and such enemies of God because of their wickedness. 
and you've walked in a gracious way, you've pleaded with them with the gospel, they continue to reject it, continue to hard. I say it's only natural to beg that God take vengeance by his own hand and act today. I just think of some horrific abuse maybe that happens to children at the hands of people. And I, I do not blame them at all for, for praying Psalm 10 against people who have been wicked and rejected the gospel and have damaged them. I think about situations where, where people have done things to children, perhaps. There is a vengeance, a holy vengeance that can rise up. And I would not fault you at all by praying Verse 10, but don't take matters in your own hand as, as David did. Even he put it in the hands of God. God, oh, hold them guilty. Let them to their own devices and just know that vengeance is mine and that he will repay. All right. My last point It's going to be quick. We've seen David praying, help me and hurt them. Hear me, verses 1 through 3, because you hate wickedness. Lead me, verses 7 and 8, because they hate you. And then now Paul is going to turn David is going to turn outward. It's he's going to see Psalm five is not merely just his own reflections to the Lord. It's really a call to the assembly, a little bit like last week. in Psalm four was Psalm four, verse four, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still offer the sacrifice of righteousness. Counsel to people. And that's where the Psalms are. The Psalms are, are yes, expressions of praise to God, but they also are instructive for the people. That's perhaps why it was for the choir director. This was. For others, this is for others to hear. And it almost becomes like an invitation. In fact, that's how I'm couching my final point, which I'm calling let's seek him. Let's seek him. But let all who take refuge in you be glad and let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. David here is concerned for the joy of God's people. He says, verse 11, be glad. He says, verse 11, sing for joy. He says, let them exult in you. He picks up the theme of joy from chapter 4, verse 7. You've put more gladness in my heart than when their new wine and grain abound. His joy ought to be the attitude of every believer. We ought to sing for joy to God because of his favor towards us. We exult in God because he's done great things for us. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to find our happiness in. And notice also in the context of the psalm, the words of protection in verse 11 and 12. Words which come to the righteous who are seeking refuge in God. Verse 11, let all who take refuge in you, that is, find our protection in you. May you, verse 11, shelter them. May you protect them. Verse 12, you surround him with a shield. See, the, David's in trouble and he's he, protection and safety are on his mind. Just like Psalm 3. You are my shield about me, Psalm 3, 3. The glory of the one who lifts my head. He's talking about protection here, shelter, surrounding and shield. And maybe that gives the ground for joy. They're surrounded on all sides by enemies. We can rest joyfully in God's protecting hand. We can sleep safely. We can sleep securely because, listen, those who believe in Christ are safe and secure. John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. As Peter said, we're protected by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed the last time. 
So I don't know what trials are coming upon your life today. I know some. But maybe there are more that I don't even know about. Friends, family, finances, sin, foolishness. Maybe you have real enemies like David did. But may I just encourage you to find your comfort and joy in the Lord, just as David sought to do. Enemies on all sides. He's just turning to the Lord, not his own devices. And may I encourage you, my last point, to, to seek the Lord, because the promise is that favor and blessing comes upon the righteous. Verse 12. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. Seek his blessing. It's the best thing for you by seeking him. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would teach us from this psalm. This psalm might become dear to us. This has become dear to me this week. That we would not only pray to you, but we would pray that you would hear the prayers we pray. We pray early and expectantly and confidently and orderly. God, that we, we truly understand your hatred towards sin and your hatred towards those who continue in sin, that we might have a healthy fear of avoiding that. Oh God, lead us in the path of righteousness. God, may we not be like the wicked people who hate you and shake their fist at you. Echoes of Psalm 2 against the Lord and against his anointed. God, but give us grace, O oh Lord, to seek you. I, I thank you that you are a, a God with open arms. God, to whom we can come. God, that all who repent and turn from their sin to follow and trust you will, will find themselves in you happy, safe, and secure. So God, may that be our, our pattern of our lives. So we'd find our safety and shelter and protection totally in you. We have nowhere else to turn. I, I pray also for those unresolved problems, unresolved hardships our congregation. That's an unsafe spouse, whether it's financial difficulties, whether there's tension in relationships, whether there's enemies at work or hostility, or even a bigger picture, our nation, as it turns more and more towards you, God. I pray in all these things, may we just seek you and seek your help. You're the only ones big enough to solve these problems. God, we, we can't solve them on our own. And so I pray that you would be our help and our shield and our protection. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.